Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my guest to you today. Uh, he is the author of The Potter's Promise, a biblical defense of traditional soteriology, as well as uh, the host of Soteriology 101 podcast, director of apologetics and theology for the Texas Baptist, and professor at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, Dr. Layton Flowers. How are you today, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Hayden. Hey, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your day to come on. I, I've been a, a, a fan of your podcast and I've read your books and stuff like that. I was telling you beforehand that uh, I really credit you as well as Dr. Allen, who I've had on before, uh, for, um, I don't want to say keeping me from going the route of Calvinism as if it's like this really bad road to go down. Uh, but that is kind of who I've uh, developed my soteriology through. And so uh, I really appreciate you coming on, sir. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Well, for those who, uh, I've given a little bit of your bio just now, but for those who may not be familiar with who you are, kind of give us a, a brief uh, bio of kind of your background and kind of what you do. Sure. Um, a lot of people that are on online know me through Sociology 101 because it's become a popular podcast. It's addressing a particular hot button topic. But um, very little of my week is actually spent on uh, Sociology 101. My, my job, my, my life calling that I did for all of the 15, uh, 20 years previous to starting the podcast just about three years ago uh, is with evangelism. And I'm the director of evangelism for uh, Texas Baptist, as you mentioned. And so my life's calling has been all about evangelism, reaching uh, young people. I was youth evangelism director for about 13 years. Uh, and I, I and I love the gospel, and I think the gospel is the answer for uh, this generation and every generation. And the culture uh, needs more than anything else is the gospel. And so we're about spreading God's news of His love and His His goodness and His grace. Um, and uh, that that's really been my my life work. I I was called to ministry when I was 18 years old and went to Hardin Simmons University and majored majored in theology, and then went on to Southwestern to continue my theological studies. And then uh, several years later, I went back to school for my doctorate work at New Orleans. And there in my uh, doctoral work, I focused specifically on soteriology because uh, I was a Calvinist for a good 10 years of my life. And I'd come to see some other teachings that really got me questioning my Calvinistic doctrines. And uh Long story short, over a period of about two or three years of studying the topic, I decided to leave Calvinism and uh, ended up writing my dissertation on that topic because of its controversial nature within my convention, the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, and that's kind of what led up to uh, starting the podcast to address this, these particular doctrines and issues. Well, very interesting, and I know you said long story short, but that is one of the questions I have for you, but we'll get to that in just a second. Um, uh, first, um, I have been kind of doing a, I don't know about a deep dive, but I keep rambling on about uh, uh, Calvinism in the last few episodes of the podcast, and so we've been discussing this topic, um, but before we get into kind of your story in and out, and then looking at the text of Romans 9 specifically, I was hoping we might uh, give a... Um, um, however brief you'd like, but a definition of Calvinism whenever we say Calvinism, just to be sure that uh, everyone's kind of on the same page. Yeah, and one of the things that I've noticed is that there's quite a few people um, who consider themselves to be Calvinistic um, who will accuse me or others like me of not knowing what Calvinism is or misrepresenting Calvinism. 
And, and I think that the reason that is, is because Calvinism is not a monolithic group. Uh, in other words, it's, it's, there's not one spokesman like John Piper, who is a you know, well-known Calvinistic scholar. A lot of Calvinists disagree with his views on Calvinism. Um, and, and, and it's very different than um, some other views. And so I was in the stream of a, more of a Southern Baptist type of Calvinist, which is really more of a, a, a kind of a popularized name for a sociological system. Sociology, for your listeners, just simply means the doctrine of salvation. And um, there's a five-point system that comes from the acrostic tulip that has become very popularized. And these five points somewhat summarize this soteriology. And those five points are T-U-L-I-P, T representing total depravity, which is not only that we're depraved and sinful, which is something I think we would all agree with, but also um, that because of your sin— and because of your fallen depravity, you can't even respond positively to God's offers of reconciliation. And so because of your inborn hatred and animosity towards God that you're born with due to the fall of Adam and that you, you inherit that nature, you, you have so much animosity from birth that no matter, even if, even if God with the gospel comes to you, um, you can't receive it. You won't want to receive it. Your 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 wanter is broken, as R.C. Sproul. And so you won't want him. And that's what the T of total depravity, or some call it total inability, is really talking about. And so if you're in that condition from birth, as you can see, it's not only a hopeless condition that you need salvation, it's, it's such a hopeless condition that you won't be saved unless God changes you into a different person, mm-hmm. changes your wanter, you know, makes you want him that you will always reject God and any offer of grace or the gospel or anything he brings to you. Yeah. And that's where I would part ways with the Calvinist on that particular. Yeah, aspect. I, I kind of want to uh, camp out there just for a second, because I really think everything kind of starts um, as far as this conversation goes. I think whenever you follow everything back and try to find a starting point, where does this really start? Where do we really first fundamentally disagree? I think it really might have to do with original sin. Would you think that that's pretty accurate or... Yes, and and aspects of original sin, I would affirm. I mean, I do believe when Adam fell, we all fell. Mm-hmm. I just disagree as to what the results of that fall entail. Yeah, so I think if you start with the foundation of we fell in the sense of we're born or by nature guilty, then I can completely see how the the rest of the tulip would follow. And, uh, right. and whereas if you disagree with that, I can see pretty much why we— the traditionalists and the Armenians, or actually the Armenians would agree on this point, so the traditionalists would disagree on everything else that follows besides uh, maybe the perseverance of the saints. Um, so I really think that that's really fundamental. So if you don't think that we were born, I'm guessing you, uh, you don't think we were born or by nature guilty, so wh- how do you understand uh, original sin then? Right, right. And so I, I would I would say guilt is not inherited. I think there's too many passages especially Ezekiel and, and other Old Testament passages that, that say that we're specific, specifically say we're not held culpable for the sins of our parents. Um, plus, that's just intuitively, I mean, that's just intuitively right. unjust to hold somebody accountable for something their mom or dad did. We just we just know that's not correct. And the Bible even says it's not. Um, so I, I don't believe we're guilty because of what Adam did. No Bible, no p- passage in the scripture ever says we're held culpable for Adam's sin. It does say there's some results of the fall. And what are those results? Well, I think the results are there's labor pains. Um, there is the toiling of the soil. 
Um, and there is spiritual deadness in the sense that we're cast out of the garden and we're separated from God and we need reconciliation. Now, deadness is oftentimes a word that's focused on and deadness by the Calvinists is often taken, I think, idiomatically to be something that the Bible never really backs up. Total and inability. That, yeah. Right. That you are, you become corpse-like dead. Like don't, a, a, don't you know, uh, Dr. Flowers, that dead people don't respond? Right. They don't respond in any way. Matter of fact, they wouldn't respond with animosity or indifference either. Right. Uh, a corpse would just lie there. And so even the Calvinist doesn't take it that literally. Dead mm -hmm. for the Calvinist means the incapacity to respond even to God's life-giving truth. And my pushback on the Calvinist is just to say, I don't think we're dead like Lazarus in the grave. Uh, sometimes I use that as an analogy of deadness. Um, the scriptures about well, Lazarus— Well, that's a really arbitrary hermeneutic, isn't it? Yeah, especially given the fact that the reason he delayed in coming uh, in order to save Lazarus was to demonstrate the power so that they would believe, yeah. which would be superfluous if <laughs> irresistible Very grace. Very unable, yeah. So um, the deadness of the prodigal son, I think, is a better idiomatic uh, representation where he was said to be lost. Now he's found. He's dead. Now he's alive. Didn't mean he couldn't return in humility. He obviously did. It just means he was separated due to his rebellion. We also see where Paul says um, that when you're a Christian, you're to be dead to sin. Well, I wish that meant that we as Christians couldn't sin, um, but it obviously doesn't. We, we as Christians still do struggle and we do sin. So being dead to something means that you're to separate yourself from that, not that you can't ever do it. Um, he says to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, uh, you're dead. Wake up. Are we to, to believe that the church in Sardis, who are Christians, couldn't uh, respond to the warning of Christ and, and come back and be back in reconciliation? See, the, the, the deadness that the Bible is talking about is not a literal corpse-like inability to respond to God's life-giving truth. And so that's where I think the Calvinist has just taken that particular um, use of the scriptural word too far in their, in their translations yeah. and understanding. Uh, so if, you, if we don't understand uh, total depravity to mean um, total inability or uh, – Sorry, back up. If we don't understand original sin to mean original guilt, then is it, um, and so you don't become guilty until you are uh, morally able to sin, uh, which I'm guessing is the interpretation that, or uh, the explanation that you're giving is, well, you, you're not born guilty. You become guilty whenever you're old enough, whatever that age is, to actually make moral decisions and sin. If that's the case, is it hypothetically possible then not to? No, the Bible does say that everyone will sin because we are surrounded by temptation. Our flesh is weak, um, and therefore the Bible does say all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So while technically you could say something like that, I don't think that the Bible supports the idea that anyone actually would resist right. sin. But, but it is important <laughs> to, um, uh, to technically say that. Otherwise, you're talking about just as much determinism as the Calvinists, correct? Yeah, and that's the way I would push on it, is I would say um, that each of us are responsible for our own actions and our choices. All of us, all of us are um, responsible for um, our either acceptance or rejection of, of God's grace and his goodness and his provision. Um, and so uh, I, I think when we're talking about technicalities of what would be possible if this or that, um, and the way I like to point at it is even, okay, so even like a two-year-old, 
I, I think all of us intuitively know a two-year-old's not really at the age of accountability. In other words, they're not really able to cognitively understand things. Or, for example, someone with a mental incapacity or, you know, somebody with severe retardation or something of that nature, um, we would all intuitively understand you couldn't hold that person morally accountable for their decisions because of their incapacities. Um, and so you might you might even say they're guiltless in the sense that they have not uh, willfully or cognitively sinned against a command of God, like willfully as, a, as an infant or an aborted baby even for that matter, uh, disobeyed God's law. And so then there would be the question, okay, does that person then therefore go to heaven um, and eternity with God, united with God on the basis of their own innocence? Or are they still, uh, are they still being shown grace to a level to where God um, uh, has provided through, the, through Calvary to overcome the curse of sin? Um, and that's one of the reasons that you, you, you can have people even on my side of the aisle theologically as far as sociology who maintain that people are guilty, um, but still not necessarily say that they're incapable of responding to God's uh, uh, call to reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And so there's actually people on my side who, who quibble about whether we're actually guilty for Adam's sin or not. I, I've sided with um, that we don't inherit Adam's guilt because of uh, just my study on the subject. I highly recommend Adam Harwood's book, um, The Spiritual Condin uh, the Condition of Infants, because yes. uh, he gives a great biblical exposition of every text that has anything to do with that, um, and it's very, very convincing, and I've, I've yet to see any kind of significant rebuttal against his work. Yeah, it is a good book, and he's also got a really short one that I purchased recently, actually, just about uh, on original sin. That's also a pretty good read. Uh, I could camp out there all day. Let, uh, I'll let you continue on in defining Calvinism. Sure. So after the T is the U, which stands for unconditional election. And what that is is that God has chosen certain individuals before the world ever began, and he's chosen them unconditionally, meaning he's not chosen them based on anything that they do or anything that they are, anything that they believe, anything about that person. But I would say arbitrary. I was going to say, isn't that really the, what the word arbitrary means? Yeah, it, by definition, it is arbitrary. Now, Calvinists don't like that term because it carries with it a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. I understand that, and so that's one of the reasons I give that qualification. A Calvinist would never call it an arbitrary choice. Right. And by definition, it is an arbitrary choice that God makes. Um, and if that's—I'm sorry— no, no, go ahead. If that's an arbitrary choice, then is God's election, God's unconditional election of uh, Abraham and Israel, is that also, would that also qualify as arbitrary? Well, I would say it was unconditional in the sense that he chose um, Israel not based upon their goodness or their, their greatness or their you know significance in numbers or anything like that. And so we believe in an unconditional election too. In other words, you might choose um, Jonah to be a messenger to go to Nineveh, not based upon how good Jonah was, or he could have chosen some, some other messenger. Um, in other words, he chooses them not based upon a quality within them that is deserving of being chosen for that significant act of service. And so there's an aspect of Scripture where he does choose weak to shame the wise. He chooses not Gideon's army when it's a big, strong army, but he pairs down the army and makes it small and insignificant, and then he chooses mm -hmm. it. So it, it seems that God chooses not not the the 
the great leaders, Pharisees of the day, but instead he chooses a, a fisherman, yeah. uh, nobody who barely knows, uh, you know, doesn't have any education. Um, why? Because it's through the week that his glory is made known. Right. Um, and so, yes, there is an unconditional aspect of the choices of God, but we don't believe in the same way that, that the Calvinist does, that God is, is choosing people uh, based upon... Um, uh, no condition in them or any choices or actions that they make in the future, um, i.e. arbitrary, prior to their being born or anything of that nature. Okay. Sorry to butt in. By all means, continue with the unconditional okay. election. <laughs> Don't ever apologize. Just jump in whenever you need to. Um, so unconditional elections, again, just the choice of people before the foundation of the world. So he's got an elect group of people that he has chosen um, for his own reasons, they're unknown to us. Sometimes I'll say for no apparent reason. Again, that's a negative way of saying it, and Calvinists don't like when I say it that way. But what I mean by that is just no known reason. There's no revealed reason to us that he's chosen a select number of people, and th those are the ones he's going to certainly save. Um, and then, then there's limited atonement. And what that means is ultimately that Jesus didn't come to die for the world as a whole, for every individual, but instead he came to die and to pay for the sins of those he's unconditionally elected. And so those he's chosen, arbitrarily, if you will, before the foundation of the world, he sends his son to die specifically only for those people. Mm -hmm. Where, as, as even many Calvinists, Calvin himself, arguably, um, and Augustine even, uh, all believe that there was a sufficiency of the atonement actually for the entire world. Yeah. Argu okay. Arguably is a nice way of putting it. It sure seems obvious when you read the, uh, yes. the original writings of both of those uh, theologians. Uh, but I think our mutual friend, Dr. David Allen, if you haven't read his books on the extent, I just, I read those books, uh, the historical critique, the theological critique, the textual critique, and I just think... I don't know how you could ever read this and walk away still holding to a, a, a limited atonement. That guy does a, a great job in, in all of his books. Check those out for sure. I thought I might have had one on the shelf here behind me. I don't think I do, though. But Yeah, uh, if, if I maintained my Calvinism, I don't know, after reading Alan's book, if I could have ever maintained uh, the four points of the—I mean, all, all five points. Right. Because the L, I, I would think I would have been convinced to go um, back to the earlier reformer, mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. And, uh, and, and hold to an actual sufficiency of the atonement. Yeah, I think that, uh, <coughs> well, you're actually somebody who has gone, I've never gone from Calvinism to non-Calvinism, kind of was standing on the, the edge there and got pulled back, so to speak. But uh, I think a lot of times limited atonement is the first domino to fall. Yeah, sometimes that's because that's the, it's the weakest of the points. It's the easiest to refute because there's just so many passages that talk about uh, Christ dying for the world and dying for all. Um, now, obviously, Calvinists have five-point Calvinists have uh, ways in which to get around that. Um, but when you really study the history of atonement, even among the Reformed, um, the the biggest debates are among Reformed people. You know, yeah. in, in varsity, intervarsity um, competitions, if you will. And so, some of the best refutations of limited atonement are by other Calvinistic scholars, mm -hmm. and so uh, it, it's it's not a point I've really focused a lot on, just simply because it's it, there's it it just seems so um, obviously weak. Uh, yeah. it's, well, it's kind yeah. of surprising people hold to it. Yeah, whenever people say they're a four point Calvinist, they usually mean that they hold to an unlimited atonement, right? 
Yes. And, and, but even, and this has been kind of the issue with me on that is that even if you hold to an unlimited atonement in the Calvinistic worldview, you're still saying that the intent of God is limited to save the elect. Um, and so it seems to be somewhat of a semantical difference when it all boils down to it. Which leads um, to a weird thing that I t- it took me, uh, Dr. Allen, I was trying to talk to Dr. Allen about this, but whenever you say God in, only intended, I mean, in the logical order of things, the intent, I think, comes first. So you're saying, the four-point Calvinist is saying, God intends to save only a certain few, but somehow it goes on to extend, the extent of the atonement is unlimited. Right. So it's like he... He aimed at only saving some, but somehow it misfired. I don't. You see what I yeah. mean? Yeah. I had, I had trouble uh, explaining that to Dr. Allen whenever we were talking. Yeah, and w- the, well, this is where it goes down to sufficiency. Okay. So say it's sufficient for everyone. That means that anyone who believes, and anyone even even if for some reason uh, an al- non-elect person did miraculously believe, okay, that would never happen under a pretty predetermined system of Calvinism, but. If they were to believe, then what Jesus wouldn't have to come back and die again yeah. in order to cover for that person's sin because he didn't cover for it the first time because the extent is universal. Which is it, either a hypothetical situation or a contradictory one. Which the, the, hypo, the word hypothetical is exactly where the whole argument with Owen's view yeah. came because Owen was trying to fight with the, the Reformed tradition, which in, under the Lombardian formula, again, Alan's book gets into all this, but under the Lombardian for, formula is of the sufficiency for all, but only efficacious mm-hmm. or uh, efficient for the few, the select. Um, which is what we would say. Right, well, yeah. But, the, but we would but, actually mean it. Yeah, but we would mean for the efficiency for the the uh, those who actually believe freely versus those who were caused to believe. Oh, okay, by yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and so the, the guys like Owen came in, and the reason he got blasted by so many other reformed um, authors is because he fought against the the Lombardian formula and said, well, it's not actual sufficiency; it's mm-hmm. a hypothetical sufficiency, meaning if God wanted to have paid for more he could have and it would have paid for more but he didn't and so it's not so it's a it's a hypothetical sufficiency not an actual sufficiency. Yeah, well, i mean well i mean if, if human beings were made in such a way that we could flap our arms and fly off then we actually could flap our wings and fly off but i don't know yeah. if that's a horrible yeah. misrepresentation but that's like exactly what i thought of when you was like well hypothetically anything's possible <laughs> exactly yeah. pretty much yeah. uh so unlimited atonement, the two common things that I get, uh, not necessarily in, in like a mean way or anything, but the questions I normally get are, okay, if he died for all the sins, why isn't everyone saved? And then the second one I get, um, and I actually see in the literature uh, uh, from Calvinists, would be um, if he died for all sins, that would include the sin of disbelief. And so those are pretty much the two most uh, common things that I get, and I'm sure you've addressed both those before, so I was hoping you would uh, here. Yeah, and so what we would say is that because the way God set up the system, the system is that, in other words, this is God's choice. He has, cho- he has chosen to give us a choice. He has chosen for us to have the ability to make our own decision. And therefore, um, the, the atonement is applied to those who believe. That's the way God set it up. That's his choice to do it that way. Um, and so I think the best visual analogy of a provisional atonement is what I refer to 
is the one that Jesus referred to in, in John 3 when he says, just as the serpent is lifted up on the pole in the desert, so too I am lifted up. That is a provisional atonement. It is, it is lifted up for the whole group, but it only actually affects or heals those who look to that provision in faith. And so if, let's use the analogy, if, if there was a snake-bitten Jew in that desert who maybe went on a little road trip and he was around the mountain and he couldn't see the serpent and uh, he got snake bit and he thought to himself, you know, that's just a bunch of hocus pocus, you know, superstition. I'm not going to go look at that serpent on the pole. I, it didn't, it's not going to make any difference. And, uh, and he dies of, of poison, snake venom. Um, and he gets up to heaven and he says to God, God, why didn't you save me from dying? Why, why didn't you provide for me a way of healing? Well, what's God going to say to him? I did. I think, oh, yeah, I did. You, you refused the provision that I gave for you because you didn't believe. You didn't trust me. And so anybody in the same way, anybody who dies that does not take advantage of the provision of Christ cannot, cannot in the end say to God, God, why didn't you provide for me? Why, why, was, why was there no options for me? Because you, the, we can, God can honestly say to them, I did provide for you. You you only perish because of your unbelief, because you refused to look to the provision uh, so as to be healed. Um, and even John Calvin has a famous quote on that particular point. He says, "No one is barred from the gates of heaven save their own, uh, saved by only their unbelief." Something of that nature, paraphrasing. But in other words, it's only uh, one's unbelief that keeps them from heaven. It's not their unbelief and a lack of provision or a lack of atonement. Um, and even even uh, portions of Dort back in the discussions over that issue cited more on that side. It says no one perishes for a want of atonement. In other words, there's no there's no one who's going to spend eternity in hell because there was an atonement provided for them. Then that's, I think, an important thing. Mm -hmm. And it, I, the reason it's important, the reason even other reformers say that's so important, is that the only way to make a geno genuine bona fide offer to all people mm -hmm. is if the has been made for all people. Otherwise, I'm lying to people if I say, uh, if you believe, you will be saved, because it's not necessarily true for everyone. Okay, so to set up uh, the, like the, the question I asked right before that as a logical argument, the Calvinist would say, uh, unbelief is a sin. Jesus died for all sins. Therefore, Jesus died for the sin of unbelief. And we would just say, yes. But the missing premise is you must believe in order to be actually be saved. Right. And yeah, I guess you could say he didn't die for the sin of continued unbelief. In other words, unrepentant, if, if, yeah. repentant unbelief. In other words, um, if the, there's an unforgivable sin, it might be um, the, the sin of continued unbelief where you continually reject the Holy Spirit. Um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that's what the word blasphemy is, is when you don't believe something and you, and you mock it. Um, that is that is ultimately the sin of uh, of unbelief, and it's it's not just unbelief; it's it's complete rebellion unto death in that unbelief. In other words, some people will conclude, therefore, if you say, "Okay, well, at the age of twenty, I blasphemed the Holy Spirit, saying mocked him." In, in other words, but at the age of forty, I came to repentance and faith, and I believe. Are you saying that I couldn't be forgiven? And I would say, absolutely not. No, you can still be forgiven. Um, what would it? Because I think the blasphemy of the spirit is is more of a continued um, uh, life of unbelief, and that's and that's 
ultimately would have well, been. There was but. a big atheist. All right, we are back with Dr. Leighton Flowers. Sorry for the uh, little uh, jump in or the glitch there. Had a little technical difficulties, but we are back, and uh, we were uh, we were discussing what exactly we were defining Calvinism. We we're talking about exactly what is the Calvinist uh, soteriological system, and I believe we were on the eye of tulip. Is that correct? Correct. That, and that stands for irresistible grace. Um, some Calvinists have redefined that to, to mean more like effectual calling. And basically what this is, is the idea that those who God has unconditionally elected before the foundation of the world, um, and he has paid on for on the cross through atonement, um, then he will come in and fix their wanter. As we talked about, he has a, they have a broken wanter. In other words, they're born incapable of believing, so God has to fix that. And so he changes their nature, gives them a new heart, some of them will say, and that makes them like come alive, and then they will want God. Then they will certainly come to him. And that's called regeneration. Some Calvinists differ on that point, but for the most part, it's kind of pre-faith regeneration. In other words, you have to be made alive, regenerated, in order to believe. So you're reborn in order to come to faith in God. Um, and again, different Calvinists, take that a little differently and use different vocabulary. It's one of the reasons, again, I'm accused of misrepresenting Calvinists mm -hmm. because not all of them are monolithic on even this point or how it's described in their order of salutis, uh, order salutis, order of salvation. Um, and so that's really where irresistible grace, uh, that's what really what it's all about, is, is what God does for those he's elected to cause, decisively cause them to come to faith in Christ. Um, some will talk about God giving certain people faith, like it's an irresistible or effectual gift. Um, and so in other words, faith is really not your responsibility, it's God's. God is the one who gives you faith. And if he gives you faith as an elect person, then you will certainly believe. Right. Uh, well, that's will... not a gift, but yeah. Right. Well, and, and that, <laughs> if, I, if I force you to take something, yeah. of course, they want to avoid the word force, but if I uh, render it certain, whatever, if I force you to take it, that's not a gift at all. Right. And, and, and the way they would explain it is that, you know, that they make it sound a lot more palatable by saying things like, well, God's goodness and his love uh, and his beauty and his glory is so irresistible that when we're, we were given eyes to see him for who he truly is, we, we can't but uh, come to him. Mm -hmm. We can't but accept him. Yeah. And so it, they make it sound very preachy and very pious and very, you yeah. know, this sounds like the real thing. But yeah. my, my what's going to convince me is not how convincing they make these statements right. it's what the bible says and i don't find anywhere this concept of irresistible or effectual calling and i think on that point it comes down at the end of the day the question i think that must that i think needs to be answered to get uh, to that point is could you have done otherwise is that correct correct and that's that's where libertarian a lot of times went in the uh, the philosophical language you'll hear li the word libertarian free will and the only reason we even have to use that kind of vernacular is because over the years, different philosophers and theologians have defined freedom of the will or human responsibility in various different ways. And so what some Calvinists do is say, yeah, we have free will. In other words, you're doing what you want to do. Um, but because you only want to hate and run from God, that's your free will. So if you left your free will, you would always reject the gospel because yeah. – that's what your will is from birth. And so what God has to do is change your nature so that you'll want him. Yeah, I was going to say, though, it, it, um, I think they say you can you can choose, but you can only choose 
according to your greatest desire or something like that. And, uh, of course, your desire is determined by that nature that you have. And that nature is determined, um, of course, at some point God is the logical you know, determination of, of this state of affairs. And so it's no, it's, uh, it's no less deterministic. Right. Yeah. And it, it becomes what you just described is exactly what the Calvinist describes as free will, which sounds a lot like animal instinct to me. Um, uh, yeah. For, for a lion chooses to eat meat instead of grass. And it doesn't sound like an imager to me. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's, and we're made in the Imago Dei. Got image bearers of God, and I think one of the reasons that we're separated from the animals is that we're we're not just instinctive beings. Now we have some instinctive things about us, but we're not just instinctive. Uh, in other words, we can reason, we can deliberate, and we can make actual choices, cho- choosing between two different options. And I think when you take away a, a, the capacity, the moral capacity to respond to God in His life-giving truth then you're ultimately removing human responsibility or any real sense of human responsibility. And then it becomes a farce, I think, mm-hmm. uh, to, to hold people accountable for things that ultimately someone else is controlling. Right. I never thought about it in those terms. That's a good way to put it. If you think that free will is simply uh, acting in accordance with your greatest desire or choosing in accordance with your greatest desire, then what you're really describing is instinct. And of course... I mean, this is just—you can actually demonstrably prove this false, I think, because I may have—my strongest desire may be to do X, but I can, I can certainly stop myself and go, I probably shouldn't do X, even though I don't have as strong as a desire to do Y, I should probably do Y because it's the right thing to do. I mean, that's what temptation is. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's mean. the reason we don't hold— you know, cats and dogs responsible for sleeping with other cats and dogs. Morally culpable, yeah. Morally culpable, but we, we'd hold uh, people responsible for those choices. Why? Because they can do otherwise. They can they can resist that temptation. Uh, and so a lot of times what I'll even point to is I'll take it out of the realm of soteriology, uh, and I'll just even talk about the freedom of a Christian's will, because you've got two regenerate people who are tempted by a sin, and they choose to sin— then is there something lacking? Is there something that God didn't give them to help them resist that temptation? As 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, that no temptation will overtake you, but God will always grant you a a means of escape. Well, if I sin as a Christian, did I not have the freedom to do otherwise? And this oftentimes puts it back on the Calvinist to at least maintain among Christians we have a libertarian free will, that a contra-causal choice or the choice to do otherwise. Otherwise, they have to, to say, as I've had some Calvinists, in order to remain consistent, they've actually argued, well, God uh, withheld the grace you needed to resist that temptation. But you're going, okay, so every time I sin, it's because God withheld grace I needed to resist that temptation? Seriously? Mm-hmm. You're really going to put that on God? Because if, if you're uh, struggling in addiction as a Christian, for example, as, as I did as a young Christian— uh, if you're struggling in some kind of an addiction, then every addict, the th- one thing they're looking for is something to justify their sin behavior. Every one of them is looking for that. And if you give them that theologically saying, oh, the only reason I'm doing this is because God preordained it. Yeah. He freed it and he withheld the needed grace I needed to overcome this addiction or overcome this sin, then you're giving the perfect excuse back for that person to continue in their addiction because, hey, it's the will of God, obviously, because anything that I did in the past must be the will of God because he's ordained all that comes to pass. Yeah. 
So it, it really does undermine the human Well, respect. that's why, and uh, uh, just to be blunt, whatever, that's why Calvinism really is presented um, with one hand behind the back, not revealing all these intricacies and uh, ins and outs that you and I might discuss because we know it. But uh, I've I've been in many churches, or I won't say many churches, but I've been in churches where uh, the pastor is clearly teaching a doctrine of Calvinism. And this actually just happened recently. I mean, he's clearly teaching uh, uh, uh irresistible grace straight from the pulpit and i walked out i was like man that guy was really calvinistic and most people are going what, what does that even mean they did they, i mean they wouldn't even have recognized it uh because i mean kind of did it underhanded and kept his hand behind his back you know didn't yeah. reveal everything about that doctrine but just just all the things that he thought was pretty oh sure yeah a few few people who are part of calvinistic the larger calvinistic churches even recognize uh the underpinning of all the calvinistic doctrine um, and that's usually because the pastor is pretty careful about only presenting those things that are um, the most edifying and easy to swallow portions of the systematic. But it's, it's only when you really begin to dive below that surface and really understand it that it becomes a little bit more controversial, obviously. Okay, well, that's the I. There's one more letter, and then we'll be through this. Yeah. Uh, uh, the yeah. P of perseverance, perseverance of the saints, um, is just that if God selected you and if he's died for you, uh, and he's irresistibly graced you, effectually called you, then you will persevere. I mean, you will continue in the faith because obviously if, if he picked you out and changed your nature, then he's controlling ultimately what you'll end up doing throughout mm-hmm. your, uh, in the sense of whether you'll leave the faith or not. And so it's, it's ultimately, uh, um, just a kind of a concluding statement of saying that once saved, always saved and, and, and want for, for reasons different than those who hold to it from my perspective. Uh, the reason that you persevere on Calvinism is because God is, is, has uh, chosen you unconditionally and has regenerated you pre-faith. Um, and, and so they would have a different view than I would take on that position, but it's it's ultimately uh, kind of a once-saved, always-saved type of position. Well, the, it's different in that um, how you get there is different, but once you get to, okay, I'm saved, you do actually agree with the Calvinists from that point on, right? right. We, we both agree regeneration has an eternal impact. In other words, re, being reborn or being born of the Spirit does have eternal effect. We both agree with that as Calvinist uh, and non-Calvinist. Uh, the difference is, is they believe in pre-faith regeneration, meaning that you are regenerated prior to having faith, mm-hmm. in, faith in Christ. Um, and so, yeah, we, we both agree that regeneration has an eternal or everlasting impact. We just disagree with the order. And uh, this is the doctrine where I think, and I'm, I'm saying we, there may actually be some nuance between us, I don't know, but this is the, the doctrine where we would say this is what we mean by predestined. Uh, you, those who are in Christ are predestined. And so once you believe, and then you're regenerated, and now you are predestined in the sense that we're talking about here with the perseverance of the saints. You right. are going to be sanctified. You are going to be glorified. That has been predetermined for those who believe. Right. And you, you break up the word predestination. You've got basically two words, pre, meaning before, and destination, right? Mm-hmm. So destination has been determined beforehand. Right. And so the destination for those who are in Christ through faith, if you come to be in Christ through faith, then the destination has been determined for you. And the blessings have been determined. The Bible promises that's what Ephesians 1 is all about. Here are the blessings that will come to all who are in Christ through faith. Um, but it's your responsibility uh, to put your faith in Christ. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, 
I know we've been talking uh, to the listener. I know we've been talking about the tulip uh, for quite a while. I actually brought Dr. Flowers on to discuss Romans 9, and, uh, and we are going to get there if that's all right with him. Um, and the reason I did is because as soon as I began to kind of uh, start doing these podcasts and blogging and whatnot, uh, I mostly talk about apologetics and then have recently been doing some soteriology, and there's actually a reason for that. I think the two are actually linked, uh, at least in the way we do apologetics. Um, has a lot to do with our soteriology. Um but as soon as I started talking about why I'm specifically why I'm not a Calvinist and I am a traditionalist or a provisionalist, um, these are the two biggest, these are the two main passages that uh, everyone wants to point me to as if I haven't read them. I have read them. And so I did a, a podcast it's myself. It, it yeah, it's like, oh, really? I didn't know that was there. No, uh, I'm kidding. By all means, point me to where you think uh, uh, I need to go. I'll go there. And as I've already proved, I went to Ephesians 1's, Ephesians 1 and read the text and did kind of a, a quick exegesis on why I there's there's just I could never see it any other way I just couldn't I mean the the words in Christ would prevent me from ever interpreting it uh, uh, the way that, that the Calvinist does and I tried to make that explicitly clear on uh, on that podcast and somebody said well you said right from the beginning there's no way you could ever see it any other way and I was like well not like predeterminedly like because of what the text says um, so I did Ephesians 1 and so I'm glad to have you on for Romans 9 um, I've got Romans 9 open up in front of me. Um, uh, so we now know what uh, uh, Calvinism is, or uh, roundabout at least, a pretty good definition of uh, what the typical Calvinist is going to believe. And then we turn to Romans 9. Why, uh, just uh, before we actually see kind of what you think Romans 9 says, why is this the go-to passage as it seems? Ephesians 1 is, a, is a, also a pretty... Uh, common go-to passage, but why is Romans 9 a go-to passage for the Calvinist? Well, because if you take Calvinism first, in other words, if you adopt a Calvinistic understanding of kind of a deterministic way of thinking, and then you read Romans 9 with those lenses on, um, then it sounds like that's what it's supporting. Um, it, it, it It is eisegetic and of course, Calvinists would accuse us of being isogenic too. So I'm not trying to be polemic in saying that. I'm just saying that, uh, on our view, looking at what they're doing, they're isogenically reading Calvinism over the top of Romans nine. And and I've used the illustration on my podcast num- a number a number of times of saying it's almost like one of those bleaks where you see both the duck and the rabbit in the same picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like you said earlier, where you could only see Ephesians one one way. It's like you could only see the duck when you read it. Um, and it's only when you take off those lenses and you back away and you take a new approach at it objectively, you can see the rabbit. In other words, you can see the other side. Now, Paul, the author, only meant one or the other. So I'm not trying to say it just it's all relative and it doesn't right. really matter how you take it. Both are right as long as you're— Well, that sense- would be a pretty disingenuous interpretation of what you just said. But, right, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm, what I'm saying is that Paul did mean either the duck or the rabbit. He yeah. either meant— the more Calvinistic reading or the more traditionalist reading. Um, but it's trying to decide which one is likely his intention. Mm-hmm. You can't do that if you only step into the text with the one lenses on and you're unwilling to be objective. The only time that you really can be discerning is if you truly do objectively understand both scholars from both viewpoints and you get where they're coming from. I'm, I'm not trying to say you have to agree with them, but you've got to understand them in order to be be a good Berean and decide which one of these is likely the meaning of the apostle. Um, and I think that when people do that, honestly, they're going to more oftentimes than not land with our interpretation. 
Um, and even when I say our interpretation, there are various nuances among non-Calvinists on how to uh, take Romans 8 and 9, uh, and among Calvinists. Um, it's really quite interesting uh, when I begin to study Romans 9, and I, I've got a chapter on my book where I do go line by line through Romans 9 there at the Potter's Promise, as you mentioned. Um, but as I was studying through that, I noticed there was quite a few variants among different Calvinists on how they would interpret certain things, even within those two chapters. And so, again, don't don't just walk away thinking it's either um, this view or that view. It, there really is nuances within both sides of, of these different sociological camps, if you will. Yeah. So uh, before I get to uh, your exegesis, your understanding of the text, uh, tell me specifically uh, which, which doctrines or, or which doctrines do the Calvinists see in Romans 8 and 9 or Romans 9? I mean, they see it all or, or kind of which one are they pointing to whenever they turn here? Well, primarily unconditional election. Okay. Is where, this is where they really go for unconditional election, really based on the Jacob and Esau narrative. Um, and Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated uh, before the twins had done anything good or bad. That, that's unconditional right there. It's unconditional. And, and before they did anything good or bad, he, he loves one. So in other words, this is the one he's going to save and he hates the other one. This is the one he's going to damn to hell. Um, and, and that's the way they would take that reading of the text. And it supports individuals, Jacob, Esau, mm-hmm. being chosen unconditionally before, before they did anything good or bad, before they were born, um, and for salvation, loved and hated. Um, and so in their mind, Romans 9 is all about the individual being chosen for unconditional election, for, mm-hmm. for irresistible grace that we talked about. And that's the way they read the text. And again, if you are explained the tulip and you come to understand that, and then you're read that text with, with, those, with that paradigm in mind, it sounds like it. that's what it's saying. And, and especially if the guy's a scholar, he's a preacher, he's passionate, and he's taking you through this text, it's like, oh, okay, I guess that means just like Jacob and Esau, I guess either I'm Jacob, like Jacob or I'm like Esau, and either God's chosen me before I did anything good or bad, or he, you know, he's rejected me, he's passed mm-hmm. by, and, and I'll end up in hell, and I really don't have any control over the, the, the differences. Um, and so that that's... I think the confusion that's often drawn uh, when approaching Romans 9 is they, that the Calvinist will, will set up their paradigm, teaching of Tulip, and then take people to Romans 9 and say, look, see what God did with Jacob and Esau? This is, this is salvific. This is how he chooses to save some and damn others. And that's just the way that it is. And who are you to question God? Mm-hmm. As of, course. Romans 9. Yeah, right. of course, a text without its context is a pretext. So we're going to try and get some context here. Um, I've got my Bible open here to Romans 8 and 9. I'm in the NASB, the non-Arminian Standard Bible version. <laughs> I use the NASB too, yes. So uh, I think uh, one of the um, important things that I've seen you and, and read uh, you talk about and write about is backing up to Romans 8 actually and uh, starting there where we see the foreknowledge, uh, specifically verse 29. Um, we start there and kind of explain uh, what the Calvinist thinks that means and then uh, where they kind of go wrong. Okay, so beginning in Romans eight twenty-nine, 29, um, and I, by the way, I do that in my book as well um, for that reason, um, and really beginning in verse 28, um, yeah, where sure. it, it talks about, you know, the very famous passage that you're all very familiar mm-hmm. with, 
Uh, we know that God causes all things to work together for, for good to those who love God and are uh, those who are called according to his purpose. Um, and I just realized I opened this up and it probably went, no, no, it stayed on the NAS. Um, it, a lot of times it switches to the NIV for some reason. That's the, the go-to. But um, the word prognosco in verse 29 is really where I have differed. And again, there are some from my side of the aisle, the That's army, a, yeah. non the side of the aisle that differ from my perspective on Romans eight twenty nine, but um, but I'm I'm fairly convinced of my interpretation of prognosco here as referring to those uh, in former times that God knew yeah. in former times. So am I, and this is what I found so interesting when I stumbled across your work and your podcasts and the book and everything is I'd always heard this. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Calvinist Baptist, uh, yeah, a Calvinist Baptist church. Um, but uh, anytime I ever heard this verse, it was always God's predestination is based on his foreknowledge. And this is the passage they would always turn to. Um, and it, but they really meant uh, they're really ceding to the Calvinists what predestination meant. And then they were just backing it up and saying, but that's based on his foreknowledge of who would choose to believe. And while that very well may be true, I really don't think that's what this text is saying. And I don't think you do either. Correct. And, and I think that's one of the shortfalls of the Arminians is that many of the Arminians, well, Arminius himself was a Calvinist. In other words, he came from a Calvinistic camp. Uh, so he's surrounded by Calvinists. And so he wants to do as little as possible to upset the apple cart, <laughs> if yeah. you will. And, uh, and so I think he concedes some things that, um, you know, for fear of being ostracized or burned at the stake or whatever it might yeah. be. Um, back in those days, it was much more likely to happen. Um, and so he was he was more careful with what he was willing to push back on. Um, and so there's certain aspects of his theology that I would differ with, but there's a lot that I, I appreciate and agree with. But it's, it's interesting in chapter 11, verse 2 of Romans, the word prognosco, same word is used again, but it's obviously referring to those he formerly knew in the past. Mm-hmm. And so God um, has God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah and how he pleased with God against Israel so yeah yes and so and and nobody disputes that that use of the word prognosco is meaning those formerly known in the past well i'm just saying it's the same word here in verse 29 of chapter 8 it's the same it's the same word same usage and it really does flow again if you if you have the duck in view when you're coming to this text, mm-hmm. you won't see it. So I'm asking you to back away objectively and kind of reapproach it for your listeners who may be not used to various interpretations. Because if, if you come to this text and you have a kind of an esoteric assumption about what foreknowledge is, that it has to be it has to be talking about God's um, you know pre-love or preordination ordination of certain individuals before time began or all of these different kinds of theological baggage that we've kind of piled onto this word. I, I think when you read some of the ancient texts um, during the times of the first century and you, you, you see the word prognosco being used and even in uh, Acts and several other verses throughout the New Testament, the word prognosco is not a weird, strange word that would have had to be like mm-hmm. unpacked for the first century Jew. Yeah. Just sim- it just simply meant formally known. You mean in extra biblical stuff too? Is that what you're? 
Yeah, I, I think that anywhere you see this word, it's it does it doesn't have to be packed with a bunch of religious baggage, and it's not really all that difficult to get. It's mm-hmm. just it's just formally known, um, and and you can see that in other in other texts. I mean, you can go to some of the other texts where it is used. Um, in fact, uh, I think it's in my book. Um, William Lane Craig is actually he's quoted there. He, he's actually referencing to Forrester Mar, uh, Marston's book uh, to to scholars, uh, Greek scholars. And he says, in certain cases, prognosco means simply that one has known or seen someone or something previously. For example, Acts six, five. Paul states that the Jews had previously known for a long time the strictness of the life of a Pharisee. And in Acts twenty one, twenty nine. Luke mentions that the Jews had previously seen um, in, in uh, Paul's company. Um, this sense is probably operative in uh, Romans eleven two as well, yeah. where Paul states uh, the apostate Israel uh, that God has not rejected His people, whom He foreknew, that is, whom He had previously known in an intimate way. Uh, and so, if if so- you take Go ahead. I'm sorry. So that's a good point, though. I mean, it it is still it's not just head knowledge. The word no would still carry, like you just said, in some uh, form of an uh, some kind of intimate way. Right, and that's one of the reasons that my particular take does not it doesn't um, have the same criticisms that the Calvinist has against the the simple uh, foresight view or looking through the quarters of time view that some Arminians take. Yeah. In other words, um, I, I would agree with them that there is an intimacy um, in the word knowledge or mm-hmm. this kind of knowing. Uh, so he intimately knew Abraham, for example. He intimately knew um, Elijah. He, he intimately had a relationship with uh, the Israelites who were in relationship with him in the past. And so when when he comes to verse 28 uh, and he says, we know, he, that word there is we know because we have observed this. We mm-hmm. know this from experience, that God causes all things to work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So how would he back up that statement? He would back it up by saying, just look at those he's formally worked with in the past. Look at those he's formally called. Look at those he's formally loved. And that's exactly what we believe he's, he's saying here in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he previously knew in the past. He predetermined or he predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son. And mm-hmm. so in other words, what what I take him to be saying is this is proof. Look at what God's done with the saints of old. This is proof that he works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called to his purpose. Oh, man, that's a good point. Yeah. I've got in my Bible in verse 29, I have, I think you have the same translation you said, the NASB. So hopefully this will work out as I say it. But uh, in verse 29, I got four of those. I got the word those circled. And then I got a line going back to 28 that says, uh, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And I've got that those circled too and a line going back and forth saying, okay, those whom God foreknew are those who loved God. And uh, like you said, yeah, it seems uh, it seems to me that the correct interpretation just from the context is this, uh, which is really repeating what you just said, I think. But just to be sure, is okay. Uh, we know God. Uh, there may be bad things happening, but if you love God, uh, He's going to bring all things to the uh, to work out for good. Right. And the proof of this is He's done it in the past. Those He formerly knew. Is that right. pretty much right? 
Yes, and, and the, the backing for this is that he switches to past tense in verse 29. Mm-hmm. So he starts using past tense um, verbs, proving that he's talking about people in the past. Mm-hmm. And the conjunction, therefore, would kind of be a proof of, right. like, he's now giving an example. Exactly. And it's just, this is the most simplistic reading of the text. In other words, yeah. what I mean is that there's no you don't have esoteric... To, yeah you know, deep theological thinking that you have to, you know, bring in this. Yeah, you don't have to load this word for new with a bunch of, yeah. Right. And it's being used like it's used four Everywhere or five else. in in the text and, and throughout the New Testament. Oh, man, it's um, and, uh, and it takes away the whole debate between Arminians and Calvinists. Yeah, it's like you're both wrong. Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> both wrong. Um, and and we just don't have the conflict anymore. It's just, it's just gone. Um, and, and that I think all of those reasons really point to why this is probably mm-hmm. the best reading of the text. And yeah. what's interesting about it is like John Piper, for example, in his book, um, as well as the Ed Carson, I believe, I may be mispronounced. I, I, I know I've read several of these guys and I can't remember. I don't have it in front of me uh, here at the hotel. Yeah, but but um, several of the Calvinists that I read through all put just the two options in front of uh, the reader. And it's the it's the Arminian God looks through the quarters of time. And, and foresees who's going to believe, and mm-hmm. those are the ones he predestines. Yeah. That's the, the, the typical classical, uh, kind of dumbed-down version of Arminianism that I, I, I think even some of the more robust Arminians do better than, than, than that explaining it. But it's either that view, usually uh, caricatured like Matt Chandler does when he says God oh, gets boy. into the Lord and, yeah. uh, and travels into the future to foresee who's going to believe, and then he, 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 he predestines those people. Um, or, or it's Calvinism. And that is that that foreknew ultimately means to predestine. The, the words are almost exactly identical. That God uh, has a has a love, a, a intimate love for people uh, chosen before the foundation of the world, uh, unconditionally or arbitrarily, whatever word you want to use there. That He's picked out, and those are the ones He predestines uh, to to um, to be conformed to Christ's image because He gives them an irresistible gift of faith and those kinds of things. And so these are the only two options that are usually even considered by the Calvinistic scholars. And I'm just saying, why not consider this option? I know it's not been that popular because, well, frankly, since the 16th century, Calvinism and Arminianism has just dominated, dominated. Yeah. Yeah, the Western uh, mindset in, in such a way as to, to almost just bury uh, this, this particular interpretation, which has actually been a, a notable and recognized uh, interpretation has just been buried under the Arminianism and Calvinism. As a, as a general rule, just for the listeners, if you're presented with a dichotomy, it's usually false. And uh, this is what I love about uh, my home here in the traditionalist camp is I've got uh, you, and I know it's not original to you, but providing a, a third alternative here. And I got, uh, again, to bring up Dr. Allen providing a third alternative to Hebrews 6. I just love to hear him talk about Hebrews 6 over there where the Calvinists and Arminians have gone back and forth forever. And he just says, you're both wrong. It's not about any of that. It's about this. And it's straight from the text. That's what I... I don't know what name we're ever going to decide on this uh, group of uh, uh, soteriology, the systematic, but a provisionalist, the traditionalist. I really like the, I just want to say like biblical or textualists or something, but of course everybody thinks their view is. So uh, anyway, so we're, we're talking about here the, the context of Roman 9. Romans 9 is right here. Uh, Paul's talking about uh, those whom God knew in the past. Where would you uh, continue your exegesis here? 
Uh, you're talking about Romans 8 then, right? Continue in Romans 8. Uh, you can, or you can go on to Romans 9 and kind of uh, discuss what the Calvinist takes and why you think that's wrong or however you want to do it. Well, just to f- finish the Romans 8, what sure. I would say is is that um, it, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those he's formerly known. Uh, he is predestined for those to be conformed to the image of his son, that they would be and this is another uh, good reason to accept this interpretation that he would be the firstborn of many brethren um, as if he's future yet tense, to come, yeah. the future tense, like he would be. Well, by the time Paul is writing this, Jesus was already born. He was already there. So to speak of him as that he would be the firstborn of many brethren doesn't doesn't seem to fit just the natural reading. And then he also speaks of them, those he predestined, in other words, those he, he who loved him and were called by his name. He had predestined, he called, he justifies, he and and uh, he justified, and he also glorified. Again, past tense there. And so, obviously, Paul hadn't been glorified at that point in the sense that he hasn't been given a new body, um, taken up to be in residence with the Father, all of those kinds of things, that, that hope that he had, he just spoke of earlier. So that, that, again, is past tense, which the Calvinist has to rely upon a very rare usage in the Greek, of it's past tense because it's as good as done because in the mind yeah. of God in the mind of God this is as good as done right. and that that does, there is a rare very rare according to Wallace a very rare Greek usage that that does support that but the fact that it's so rare and the fact that earlier in the same chapter he's already said that it's something that we're eagerly awaiting for yeah. it's only for those who continue in the faith yeah doesn't seem like he would switch in just a few verses down. Uh, just... Yeah, I mean, it's completely unnecessary, too. Uh, but I got a question. Is So what is, back in 29, what is this, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren? Um, so, yeah. In, in it my... just kind of seems, just as I read it, surface level, it just kind of seems like that was kind of almost just like thrown in there. I don't really, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I go in more detail in my book on that particular point um, about what how, how that's used. Uh, within the Old Testament and in the New Testament, uh, that, that there's a lot of uh, significance with the firstborn um, and and what that means within the Greek culture um, as as a representative or of a, a, as a head, um, as the preeminent one. Um, and so there's there's a lot of um, and it probably too long to go into right now. Sure. But there's yeah, a lot, uh, kind of un- underpinning meaning within uh, the Israelite culture as to being the firstborn of uh, of a people, if that makes sense. Yeah. Sure. Okay. The same reason that we've got the Jacob and Esau as the national heads and representatives of those heads. Um, the firstborn is is often oftentimes seen as the the chosen or you know elect one, and the fact that Esau was the firstborn uh, is it kind of flies in the face of that typical cultural norm of the way they would understand the firstborn, but. We can get we we can get down a long rabbit trail with that particular. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, so as we go, uh, continue on. I mean, you can whatever you got time for, whatever you feel like doing. Uh, if you want to go line by line, I'm not going to stop you. But if you just want to skip forward and hit the major points, that's fine too. Whatever you want to do here. Yeah, um, we go into Romans nine, and he starts off, and he's he seems to be addressing here this this concept or idea that well, if 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 God's done this saving work for these people for his people but what about the fact that his people the israelites aren't uh at least for the most part coming to faith mm-hmm. uh, because the notable israelites of that day they weren't listening to paul they're trying to throw paul into prison and so it seems like the mass number and the most notable israelites are rejecting the gospel and rejecting paul's message 
which to an outsider might go, well, that invalidates you. Yeah. That, that makes it mean, that means that you must be wrong. And that, that would mean that God has really failed in his, his promises to Israel. So it actually seems, okay, if uh, what you're saying is true, that this is the, uh, probably not hypothetical, but this is the objector in Paul's letter. If he's saying, if uh, these are God's chosen people, why, and this is God's chosen Messiah, why do they not believe? If that's the correct uh, understanding of who's a, if that's the correct understanding of the objector in Romans 9, or in Romans, um, then it actually seems like the objector is making the same exact mistake that the Calvinist is making. Uh, yeah. he, you know what I mean? Like, if you think about it, I mean, he's making the mistake that, well, if they're chosen, they should be saved. Right. Yeah, because they're thinking of um, election being based upon your nationality mm-hmm. and um, your 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 adherence to the, yeah, the of Moses. So in that sense, it's different than what the the right. Calvinist modern Calvinist is saying, but it's similar. Right. To what I'm saying in the sense that uh, yeah. election equals salvation. Right. And so the way the way Paul really gets into this text is he starts off by expressing his love for these people who are abusing him. These people are throwing him in prison. But he says, I'm willing to give up my own salvation for them in the first three verses here. In other words, that he s- expresses a self-sacrificial love for them. And so I always point out to Calvinists, do, do you think Paul, writing under inspiration, is expressing more love towards these hardened, cut-off Jews than Jesus had for them? Because a, a five-point Calvinist would have to say that Paul is expressing more self-sacrificial love, because Jesus wasn't willing to sacrifice himself for these people, but Paul was. And so that, that first of all, I think really does a, a detrimental uh, you know, take on the Calvinistic interpretation. So he's willing to himself be accursed or separated for the sake of these people, but, but Jesus obviously under the Calvinistic worldview wouldn't have been. And he said, and then he goes on in verse four and he talks about what sets Israel, Israel apart. And this really harkens back to chapter three of Romans where the same thing is asked before, it, you know, well, then what, what's it special? Is there anything good about being an Israelite? I mean, what, what, is it, what does it matter if I'm a Jew or not? Um, and, and, uh, and he says it is significant to be a Jew because we are the ones, the Jews are the ones that are trust with the oracles or the word of God. Yeah, so it seems like he's saying, okay, if election does not equal salvation, then what's the benefit of being a Jew? Right, yeah. If if being a part of Israel is not going to be the, the what causes me to be a covenant part of the covenant people, but instead God's accepted people, Jew Gentile alike, regardless. I mean, then what what benefit is it being a Jew? Mm-hmm. And He says much in every way, and and, there, and then He points back to these same things right here, as in verse four and five, uh, and when He says, "To whom belong the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises, those whose fathers." from whom the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. In other words, the Christ, the Messiah, comes through this lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, there's, there's, a very, there's very much a significance of being a part of the national uh, part of this nation, of being uh, um, genetically a, a part, I guess, if you will, of the, the Jewish people. It's not insignificant because these people have been chosen for a noble or honorable purpose. And this purpose was really stated from the very beginning when God chose Abraham then, of course. Uh, He's talking about here how Christ has come through the lineage. Uh, It would seem to me that that would be in line with um, um, 
of course he gets to that explicitly in the letter itself but uh, then Jesus really is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham in the very beginning correct yeah. and so you you've got the the blessings of Israel the Israel's been chosen um, to to bring the seed uh, to bring the promise to bring the message of the, uh, the message and the Messiah mm-hmm. and so that is an important and significant role um, that that only Israel was chosen to do. Now, notice that has nothing to do with about individual Israelites being chosen to be effectually saved. Right. Okay, it's about God electing this nation of people to bring about the Messiah for the mm-hmm. salvation of the world. Like you mentioned before, the promise that God made to Abraham. What was that promise? That I will bless all the families of the world through you. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the, he didn't choose Israel so as to save cer- certain individuals and not others. He chose Israel to be the lineage through which the Messiah and his message would come mm-hmm. so as to bless all of the nations of the earth. Right. Uh, and so what what I would say to that is this. The problem that's being presented is not all Israel is is coming to salvation and being saved, especially the predominant um, people among the Israelites that everybody looked to for leadership. Um, they were they were rejecting the gospel. They're not being saved. And so the big question is, why not? Has God's promise failed? And the Calvinist would say, well, no, God hasn't failed because God didn't elect individually every descendant from Abraham, every Israelite for salvation. And so that's the way the Calvinist would answer that question. Um, now, we agree with the Calvinist in the sense that here's the problem, that, that not all Israel is being saved. And you're asking the question, why not? Well, we would say, that as, a, as a non-Calvinist, we would say, well, because salvation is not based upon them being an elect nation. In other words, that salvation is not based upon them fulfilling the law and them being uh, a descendant from um, Abraham. Mm -hmm. And so we're both answering the same question. We're just answering it differently. And we would also agree that it is God's sovereign right to define his covenant people however he wants to. He can do whatever he wants. He can show mercy to anybody, anybody he wants to show mercy to. The Calvinist thinks he wants to show mercy to people chosen for no apparent reason before the world ever began. He wants to show mercy to those who have faith, whether they're a Jew or not. Mm-hmm. But in both of those situations, it's still God defining as his so- as a sovereign his right to, to define who his people are. In and, other words, his choice. And, and just something I was thinking as you're discussing this and how the Calvinists might interpret this is, just uh, from a bigger picture, is... Unless you're going to say Paul is just pulling this out of a hat, he had to have been. If if he's if he's if if the Calvinist is right about what Paul intended by writing this letter or these words right here in Romans nine, uh, he had to get it from somewhere. Uh, I mean, he didn't just pull it out. I mean, unless they think he just pulled it out of a hat, and now we've got a new revelation, we got to deal with it, even though it doesn't have any uh, uh, history to it at all. Uh, because, and the reason I'm saying that is because if you go to the Old Testament, I mean, the definition of election is pretty clear. I mean, it knows nothing of individuals to salvation. I mean, there's just, as far as I can tell, unless you can think of some go-to Old Testament passages for the Calvinists, I don't know where you would even turn to try to present something like that from the Old Testament. Right, and that's and that's one of the reasons this was such a kind of idiocentric way of... of <coughs> yeah, idiosyncratic, yeah. 
Sorry, I'm getting choked up. Oh, on you're, my, you're fine. Um, I've got I've gotten bronchitis and I've, I've had oh. to pop off several times. But it's it, the the Augustinian interpretation isn't introduced until um, Augustine in the fifth century. And prior to that, when people talked about election, and especially during the first century, when people heard the term election or choice, God's choice of stuff. <clears throat> sorry. No. Um, it, it was obviously he was obviously talking about election of the nation of Israel chosen to be the seed by which the promise would come. It was never about God choosing individuals to be somehow effectually made into new people so as to be saved. Um, that, that's just it's just a new understanding of election that's introduced um, years and years later that's not seen in any of the early church fathers. Um, and, and I and I, I know that there have been some who have attempted to try to find quotes from early church fathers that yeah. seem to support that. But uh, if they look at all their writings uh, holistically, um, the, even even the texts they pull out of context are much uh, interpreted the same way that they misinterpret the, the New Testament text yeah. um, to try to, to cobble together to support. Most uh, Calvinist scholars will uh, concede this, though. I'm thinking of Lorraine Botner, for example. But uh, right. most would say, yeah, it began with Augustine. Uh, and so I, I guess that really what it comes down to is the difference between uh, what what we believe God is choosing to do, because we, we all agree God could do whatever he wants to do. Right. Okay? He can save whoever he wants to save. Um, if he wants to save people arbitrarily or unconditionally chosen people prior to the existence of the world, then that's what he, he could do. I'm, I'm not trying to say he couldn't do that. He's right. God. He can do whatever he wants to do. So the debate is not over what God could do. The debate is over what, what has God chosen to do yeah. and yeah. what does the Bible tell us he's chosen to do. And so God's sovereign right to define his covenant people is, is either arbitrarily or by grace through faith. Mm-hmm. Okay, Because, and again, I know they don't like the word arbitrary, but again, by definition, I think that's what it is. And so either, either Paul in Romans 9 is defending God's right to arbitrarily save certain individuals, or he's defending his right to save those who believe regardless of their nationality and their keeping of the commandments, the keeping of the laws like circumcision and all those kinds of things. Because remember, the big debate for Paul in his day was not um, was not Calvinism versus Arminianism or monergism versus synergism, right. all the words that we've come up with. The big debate for Paul was uh, Jew versus Gentile. Right. And the thing he was fighting against all of the time were Judaizers of his day who were trying to say, if you want to be, if you want to come, to, if you want to be saved, if you want a relationship with the part of the covenant people of God, then you've got to get circumcised. You've got to become a Jew and follow these commandments. And this is what this is what you've got to do in order to be saved. Um, and Paul is fighting that. And that's exactly what he's doing here in Romans nine. And the reason I know that is by looking at how he concludes Romans nine and verse 30 and following when he, when he says, what shall we say to these things? And he goes on to show that J- the Jews who are pursuing this through law, they're mm-hmm. not, but the Gentiles who are not descendants of Abraham, they're pursuing it through faith and they are attaining it. So this proves that this is what Paul is concluding through this whole uh, teaching of Romans nine. He's, he's, he's bringing it to a climax to show that it's not through nationality that you're saved. It's not through law and works or running after and striving for that, uh, that you're saved. It is by grace through faith that you're saved. 
Um, and that's what he's setting up throughout this this text. So is there any uh, passages in the Old Testament that any Calvinists turn to to try to say maybe this is where Paul got this, or do they pretty much concede that uh, this is a new uh, teaching? Well, what's interesting in my debate with uh, James White— Well, I was going to bring that up. I just wasn't <laughs> sure if he should be named, but yeah, go ahead. I mean, our differences often had to do with this because I would— I would strive to go back. Okay, Paul quotes from uh, Exodus 32 or 33 here. So let's go back to Exodus 32 and 33 and look at what was happening in that context in order to, to understand election and what God meant when he says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. What, what is he talking about in that context? And and uh, what James White would do, well, no, 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 you don't need to run off. You even use that term. You don't, even, you don't need to run off into the Old Testament. Hmm. Um, you need to look at the apostolic interpretation. In other words, um, the Calvinistic interpretation is what ultimately is saying, which is question begging, because I think the only way to understand what the apostle means is to understand the context from which he's quoting. Well, of course, and if you know the apostle Paul, uh, he doesn't just pull his theology um, you know, out of a hat. He always provides some kind of Old Testament context to say, oh, this was here the whole time, and now I can see it in light of Jesus, and it's, it's always coming straight from the Old Testament. Correct. Every, so, everywhere else it is. You would have to argue this is the only place he didn't. Right. And and so when you look at the original context of, of Paul's quotes from the Old Testament, which I think he quotes from the Old Testament, what, I think 13 times or something like that here in this one chapter. Yeah. And so when you when you look at all of the individual quotes that he, he, he brings into this chapter, not a single one of them even comes close in the original context of the Old Testament to support a Calvinistic rendering. And even Calvinists are admitting that by saying, well, you've got to take the apostolic interpretation, because what they're ultimately saying is, well, the apostle is interpreting those verses to support a Calvinistic uh, reading of election. Arbitrarily? Right. And that's and that's where you got to say, OK, well, how do you know that? And, and, the, and the only way you can is just because you're asserting that these words must mean yeah. You have to arbitrarily interpret that Paul is arbitrarily interpreting the Old Testament. Uh, yeah, to, that, to walk that, away with that, as far as I can tell. But right, and that's what we're trying to push back on is to say you have to have good reason to believe yeah. that Paul was, in essence, eisegeting the Old Testament in order to support this new soteriological view that God had inspired him to write about. Yeah. Um, and again, I guess God could do that. Yeah, he I could. Mean, if Paul had started Romans nine verse one saying. Uh, you won't find this in the Old Testament, but uh, or of course he wouldn't use the word Old Testament. But you won't find this in the Torah. But here's right, what right. we know now. Then, then I might be on board. So, but until you exactly. can do that, I'm probably not even going to consider it. <laughs> exactly, and there's no reason to. I mean, and that's the that's the thing is is when you really begin to look at how much division the Calvinistic rendering has caused since the time it was introduced by Augustine, um, and and you see how much confusion people have over it. Uh, the, the fact that the very first question that most people have when introduced to Calvinism is, then why should I evangelize? Um, the fact that most Calvinists go through what they call a quote-unquote cage stage, uh, where they're especially mean and uh, nasty towards other people. The fact that you have all of these kinds of things that mark the Calvinistic system um, just show that at least if nothing else, you should back away and say, could it be that that this is just a misinterpretation, that we just— You've just misunderstood what Paul was saying, especially when Peter, who was associated with the church in Rome, by the way, he was one of the, the first uh, 
teachers there in Rome or the pastors there in Rome. Um, I would think Peter would be very familiar with his letter. Um, he even says that Paul's teachings can be confusing um, and that we should yeah. be careful not to be led astray. Yeah, I love that verse. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so, um, so we've got to be careful with these more difficult passages, especially if we're not from the original culture that it's being written in and don't have a full grasp or understanding of, of Israel's history or uh, the idiomatic uses of, of, of uh, Greek language in the first century. Got to be careful of how we can misapply these things and take them in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, in my book, I go verse by verse through the rest of these, and I, I mean, I don't know how much time you want to take. We can go through more of these. Yeah, verses. I was fixing to fast forward things. Uh, we we have been, but that's great though that we just getting stuck on the Word of God here, doing some exegesis. No story time or anything. Believe it or not, we're just doing exegesis <laughs> here. I'm not going to go any further into that. You can pretend <laughs> like I didn't say that. Uh, but I do want to get to one last part of Romans 9, at least, and that is uh, w how do we make sense of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, I got mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion. Will you respond to the the potter, uh, uh, you know, why have you made me this way and all that? Kind of this whole, th those seem to all kind of go together, kind of talking about the same idea. So I thought I'd group them together for you and say, what right. do we do with this? <laughs> well, let's start with the twins. Um why would he bring up the twins? Is, it, is he bringing up the twins to prove individual election to salvation, that God hates some people before they're ever born, he loves other people, and this is an example of that, Jacob and Esau? Is that the purpose of bringing up the twins? Or could the purpose of bringing up the twins demonstrate that the lineage, the, the being the seed of somebody, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be blessed or that you're going to be saved? Um, and so when he quotes from this, and he says not only this, but when Sarah also had— she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now notice there that the language is the older will serve mm -hmm. the younger. It doesn't say the, the, the older is hated in, yeah. in the sense of it doesn't, it's not salvifically loved or whatever. And, and therefore, he's going to certainly be damned. It's just mm -hmm. that the older and his lineage would serve the purpose of the younger and his lineage. Yeah, if you run off back to the Old Testament and read this back in its context, there's just I don't think there's any way uh, you could come away with the interpretation that God uh, damned Esau to hell. Yeah, well, and plus, yeah, he even says in Deuteronomy, he says, uh, do not despise the Edomites, for they are your brother. Yeah. And he gives, he blesses Edomites and gives them their own land, just like he does the Ishmaelites, by the way. And he blessed Ishmael. Um, th th this concept that if God chooses you to carry the promise, therefore that equals he's choosing you for salvation and not the others, th that's just a farce, because what about all of the other sons of Abraham? Mm -hmm. Sons of Keturah. He had six other boys yeah. after Isaac. So did, did all of them go to hell because they weren't chosen to carry the seed? Exactly. Of course not. It's not about choice for salvation. It's about choice to carry the lineage of Christ. And, That's and sorry, yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. But and I'm gonna guess that the Calvinist is probably going to concede that yeah, if you read the Old Testament text, it doesn't appear that uh, God is condemning Esau to hell. Um, otherwise, I, I mean, I don't know where you would get that from in the Old Testament passage back there. So I'm going to guess that they would also agree with that. But then if you're going to maintain your interpretation of this Romans 9, then you're going to have, again, I'm backing up thinking about Paul in the bigger picture here, then you're going to have to maintain 
that Paul is making and um, is looking at the historical event that did not happen, God condemning Esau to hell, and making a point about uh, making drawing an illustration off of that here in Romans 9 to say that God does unconditionally elect some and then uh, reprobate others. Which right. again, he and he's you're saying he's teaching that and he's basing it on an event that did not happen, right. which is him condemning Esau to hell. It's like well, this, this just doesn't make any sense. And that's what some Calvinists do is that they'll say, well, we're not trying to say that Esau necessarily was condemned to hell. We don't know that. Mm-hmm. But, what, but what got what 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 Paul is doing in his apostolic interpretation is he's using the example of God choosing Jacob to be the seed <laughs> as an example of how he chooses certain people for salvation. Yeah, I mean, I want to be respectful, but I mean, we all want our cake and we want to eat it too. I don't know what you want me to say. You, yeah. That's not how the rules work. You don't get to do that. <laughs> if Paul would have put a footnote in there and said, in the same way that Jacob was chosen for the to be the head of the, the right. lineage, in the same way individuals are chosen before they did anything good or bad, which is always an interesting thing to me, because if you believe, as the Calvinistic dogma does, that God ultimately controls, i.e. determines, i.e. decrees the good and bad everybody ends up doing, um, then what difference does it make if he chose them before they did anything good or bad or not? In other words, the significance of that statement seems to be predicated on the fact that the twins had something to do with the good or bad they end up doing. Uh, in other words, in order for God to make the choice prior to them doing anything good or bad, uh, only makes sense as if if the child is ultimately responsible for the good and bad he ends up doing in the future, um, which again just doesn't make a lot of sense. So that now all of that quote in verse eleven and twelve that's from Genesis, mm-hmm. and then he quotes from Malachi, which if you know your Bible in the Old Testament, that's the last book of the Old Testament. So this is fifteen hundred years separating these two verses. So he quotes from Genesis, and then he gets to Malachi, where he says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Now, if you go to Malachi, again, James White and other Calvinists said, Don't run off to the Old Testament text, just look at what Paul's saying. Well, I have to I have to look at what he's quoting from to understand what he's what he's referencing, because he knows his reader knows the Old Testament. He knows that his reader knows the context. So shouldn't we? in order to understand Paul? Well, we do this everywhere else. If you're going to apply this, don't go to the Old Testament thing. I've never heard uh, the gentleman you're referring to or anybody else ever say that in any other context because, of course, we want to understand the Bible in its biblical theological context. That's literally what biblical theology is. And all of them would affirm that biblical theology is something we should do. And then all of a sudden, anyway... Yeah. Continue. <laughs> so saying Jacob I loved Esau I hated is a quote out of Malachi, which is hatred is idiomatic uh, for uh, for wrath. So the wrath of God comes upon those who stand against God um, as the promise. The original promise was a conditional promise. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. In other words, um, speaking to Abraham, he says that, but what is he saying? He's given a conditional promise. If somebody stands against you and your seed and, and the promises that I've made and try to thwart my will to bring about my purposes through my, my seed, then then they will be cursed. And that's exactly what's happened in Malachi because the Edomites, which are often referred to by their national head's name, Esau, came against his brother, the, uh, Jacob, which would represent Israel, and he 
comes under curse, which if you read the context, it's exactly what happens. Yeah. The land is taken away from him. They have curse upon them. They lose their blessings. Why? Because they came against the people of God. Now, why would Paul refer to this in this context and asking the question of has God's promises failed? Well, what is he trying to do? He's trying to show being a part of the lineage of Abraham does not secure that you will be blessed and saved. Because look, even the firstborn child of Isaac himself was cursed mm -hmm. when he stood against the people of God. So what's going to happen to you, Israelite, if you stand against the apostles today, the people of God? So in other words, just because you think you have the national privilege because of who your granddaddy is, Abraham, remember, who's Esau's granddaddy? Yeah, It's Abraham too. And look what happened to them. They were blessed until they stood against the people of God, and guess what happened to them? Then they became cursed. And that can happen to you too if you stand against the people of God. And so that's the reason he would have brought, brought up this, this passage, is to show it's not by national privilege. It's not by being an Israelite, i.e. from Abraham's seed, that guarantees you that you're elect for salvation and that you have nothing to worry about anymore. Yeah. Uh, so that's ultimately what he would be. Uh, yeah, which is it, it actually, again, I come back to what I said at the beginning, which is it really kind of seems like Paul is explicitly arguing against what the Calvinist wants to say he is actually saying in an in a odd turn of events there. Uh, there's plenty more that we could get into in the rest of Romans 9, and I feel like I'm, I'm kind of cutting it short, but I really don't want to. Uh, we've, we've been going for a while here now. Maybe we'll have you back on some uh, another time. Um, before you go, I do always uh, I like to do this, uh, offer this uh, question up. Uh, maybe there's a Calvinist tuning in out there. Uh, someone, um, I'm guessing if they're listening, they're probably on the fence. And so uh, what would you say to a Calvinist who's kind of saying, uh, you know what, this is uh, kind of makes some sense, but, you know, um, and I discussed this uh, previously on the podcast, but they, you know, a lot of times you might feel like, and just speaking from people who have gone from Calvinist to non-Calvinist, uh, a lot of times they start seeing, you know, things start clicking and they see it, but then they they get drawn back uh, towards the Calvinism through this, because these really well-known Calvinist preachers and teachers like to set it up like this, Calvinism is the high view of God and anything else is this low view of God, and so they say, well, I do see what you're saying is making sense, but I don't want to have this man-centered theology. Uh, yeah. So what would you say to somebody like that uh, uh, who's kind of connecting the dots well i would say i know that your goal is to be as true to the text as you can be and that's where you, that's what you should do you should strive to be as true to the text as you could be but you can't be true to the text if you don't understand both sides of the arguments from the best scholars uh with regard to the text because it's only when you study both sides that you can really be objective enough to judge whether paul is saying this or saying that in his context and so I would just encourage you to be a good Berean and be objective, be open-minded, to consider a view that you haven't heard yet before. Don't just shut it off. Remember that um, John Piper, I mean, even he's seen as this, you know, kind of well-known pastor thing. But I remember he was just a pastor of a medium-sized church, uh, Bethlehem Baptist there, and he was, quote-unquote, nobody. Um, until uh, Louis Giglio invited him to be a part of the Passion group, and then all of a sudden popularity happened. Um, and that's only been since the mid-90s that that's even started happening. That's relatively a short amount of time. And Calvinism, over the years, when you study the history of this, 
Calvinism has resurged in popularity about four times over the last 500 years. Even Al Mohler refers to that in one of his episodes, and he's a known Calvinist today. And so it's either surged back up and died back out because God ordained it to, or it's not a tenable, workable system that that can maintain itself. And, and I would assert that it's the latter of those two, that it just does not practically play itself out, and that once people begin to see the errors of this philosophical system and the, the, the lacking of biblical support that it really has when you begin to take, about, take away the proof text and to understand them in the right context, then you begin to see, I think, uh, the strength of a robust theology that's not Calvinistic. Because like you said, I think the rise in popularity of Calvinism has come from people seeing either a Joel Olstein type, and I know some people may be fans of Joel Olstein, but he, te- he teaches a more health, wealth, prosperity type of gospel that only talks about the good stuff about the Bible and doesn't talk about the harder, right. harder, difficult stuff about wrath and, 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 and sin and those kinds of things. And when you have that and you compare it to John Piper or John MacArthur or other Calvinists, yeah, it, it seems like I would much rather have this than namby-pamby easy believism. Um, and, 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 and just health, wealth, prosperity, uh, gospel stuff. But those, again, it's not the dichotomy, either this or this. There's also very robust, very deep thinking teachers and professors and pastors. Actually, that, the, ma- the majority. Correct. The majority throughout history and even today still do not hold to a five-point Calvinistic system. Um, and, and sometimes it may take a little bit more work to search those people out and to find them, uh, but don't just go with the fads of, of current modern day theological swings, um, because I anticipate, and if history uh, bears out, it's happening already. Yeah, Calvinism will will come swinging back down as fast as it swung up, swung up, um, and and so don't be caught on that that pendulum of just uh, being swept with every wind and wave of doctrine, but instead really ground yourself, not in the dichotomies that are often set up falsely, but in that, that's, that, that strong middle place that oftentimes is overlooked by the extreme versions of the different theological mm-hmm. uh, fads that come in and out of, of popularity. Yeah, and at the end of the day, just stick to the text, run back to the Old Testament, get some context. Um, and uh, you should be okay. Uh, Dr. Flowers, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, guys, if you're uh, still listening, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, if you like the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review. And, of course, if you want to watch uh, the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Dr. Leighton Flowers, stick around. We'll do a short bonus segment. You can follow the link in the description over to our Patreon page and become a supporter to get access to that. Dr. Flowers, thanks so much for joining me again. It was a, it was a pleasure, sir. My pleasure.